1: How can a company go bankrupt when it's still solvent? And what do Huawei's U.S. fraud charges mean for the telecoms industry? These are the questions we'll be digging into on this week's Views Room. I'm your host, Anthony Curry. Later in the show, I'll be handing over to a couple of our colleagues in London to discuss the latest problems hitting the Chinese telecom equipment maker. To kick off, let's turn our attention westwards, to California. On January 29th, PG&E, one of the country's largest electricity providers, filed for Chapter 11. Rather unusually in this situation, its stock soared and the company is currently worth $7 billion or so. Joining us to make some sense out of this conundrum is Breaking View's Dallas-based columnist, Lauren silver Welcome on the show, Lauren.
2: Hi. Thanks for having me.
1: So let's start with the basics of what's the company's reason for filing for Chapter 11 uh, if it's still basically financially solvent and shareholders think it's looking okay within reason.
2: The company has been mixed up with a couple of very deadly uh, wildfires out in California in 2017 and more recently um, just this past fall. And so about two weeks ago uh, or so, they came out with a statement saying, that they could be on the hook for $30 billion of liabilities as it relates to these wildfires. And there are some issues with the way that they, um, the state of California allows for um, responsibility to be placed on PG&E and other utility companies that made this seem sort of plausible And that's made its short-term funding um, a little bit difficult, and so the company has used that as a reason or an excuse, really, to go into bankruptcy.
1: Okay, so it's not necessarily that um, it's um, financially insolvent, more, it might have a liquidity
2: crunch. Exactly. And what's unusual is that, you know, you don't often see companies preemptively going into bankruptcy because they may be insolvent someday. Um, bankruptcy is not really something a company typically wants to do. And in this case, they are actually going into bankrupt bankruptcy court and they are not insolvent.
1: Okay, fair, fair enough. But you know, we saw in the days of the So obviously, that, as you said, this happened two weeks ago. I think by California law, companies have to give 15 days' notice of bankruptcy. At least um, a, com- a, bank, a company like PG&E, um, a utility. Um, since that happened several financial institutions came out and said we can do something here. First there was a, well I'm mean, not sure I'd call um, Blue Mountain an activist, but a hedge fund came out and said that we've got, we've, we don't like the idea of bankruptcy and several others came out and offered some money uh, to fund That's it, right. to keep it out of bankruptcy. So what was wrong with their approaches? Let's start first with, um, with Blue Mountain which is basically to my mind has always, always been a credit fund but now it's turned into a sort of shareholder activist almost.
2: Well, it has in this situation, which, like you say, is unusual for the fund. And um, their problem is that they really came out just kind of late. Um, it was just a day or two before PG&E had said that maybe that they would file for bankruptcy. And um, and there wasn't a lot of momentum. And um, PG&E had sort of this self-imposed deadline of filing. They didn't really have an interest payment coming due. There was no one breathing down their neck saying that they had to file. So perhaps Blue Mountain thought maybe they would be able to stay things at the very last minute. But truth be told, the, it wasn't even just 15 days that this has been going on. People have been talking about PG&E's potential problems for months, and their liquidity position didn't really change a whole lot over that period of time. So Blue Mountains, perhaps their biggest mistake was that they were a little bit late to the game.
1: Right. And then we get to those offerings. So and finally, up to $4 billion or so of funding was on the table early this week or last week. Tell us about that.
2: So it did seem like a lot of hedge funds, including Elliott, were putting together funding to try to keep pg e out of bankruptcy. And was this sort of rescue funding package. We don't really know exactly what those funding packages looked like. But, you know, it could be argued that pg e for example, thought that the um, terms that they were getting from these hedge funds were punitive or overly punitive, and they didn't want to accept those. At the same time, they had debtor in possession financing, which is the financing that you get to kind of go through bankruptcy. And yeah, and that, that may have had more favorable terms. So perhaps that's why they did it the packages that Elliot and maybe some of the others um could have been overly punitive and asked for things from the company and perhaps other shareholders that they didn't want to give. Um, Conversely, the company had put together debtor-in-possession financing, which is financing that would help the company go through bankruptcy process, and that might have had more uh, more favorable terms. But what the company perhaps was missing is the amount of fees that they're going to be paying as they go through bankruptcy to bankruptcy lawyers and to their advisors, and those can be quite high.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've seen a lot of those examples. And, you know, it, it, It's not surprising. These things can last one, two, three, even four years sometimes for some of these institutions. So yeah, that's Absolutely, a lot of hay yeah. to be made. Um, whereas you know, in the interim, you know, PGE, as with most utilities in this country, it, it, the rates that they charge are set by... Um, essentially by the state or by uh, the city or what or whichever institution um, has a governing right over this, right So it's not as if yes. they could they could increase their fees as a way out of this.
2: That's right. And I mean, I think that's part of the dynamic that's at play here, um, which is a lot of the story that's not being talked about. What you're hearing from PG&E is that they have these liabilities and they might not be able to pay them, but dig a little deeper. And the real issue is the rates and the way that the rates um, of electricity and power are changing. Um, And that's affecting PG&E and all sorts of levels. The first one is that, like, as you say, they can't raise the rates at their whim. And they are, you know, a regulated utility. And so there is some negotiating and going back and forth with the state. And, you know, perhaps PG&E thinks that if it's a bankrupt company, it'll have a little bit more power and control over that negotiation process. And they probably will. If they Mm. can argue that they don't have enough money, they don't have enough money. And California perhaps has to give give a little bit more.
1: Okay. I mean, the other issue, I mean, yeah I mean bankruptcy complicates the whole thing because the idea is that in bankruptcy you can you can be absolved as a company of past um, debts, but these debts haven 't yet been set, and you know even if they were you know thirty billion is is the upper case they 're mentioning, which you know, you know, it 's it's rare for a company to come up with numbers like that because they don't, normally once you do that, then those who might sue you know exactly what you 're worried about and will sue you for at least that amount um but it's you know that thirty billion that's, that wouldn't necessarily get hit be, be charged immediately. I mean this, we're talking about long term cases here, aren't we? That would
2: absolutely yes. Would
1: drag on a long time. Yeah, so the that's... idea of funding this somehow doesn't have to be done immediately, and therefore you know you'd be bankrupt and can't borrow money against it.
2: That's exactly right. And, you know, as an example of this, over these two weeks after PG&E kind of gave its bankruptcy notice, CAL FIRE, which is a the it's a sort of fire group in California, came out and said that they weren't at least, um, that another, another group was actually responsible for 2017 fires that contributed to over uh, 20 fatalities. And so, um, it's a moving target. This thirty billion dollars is by no means a set figure, and um, and so investors don't really know what that number looks like.
1: Right, and that, yeah, that makes it really tricky to, to to decide what to do next. Although I think, you know, given that the company's still worth seven billion, shows investors feel there is uh, some recourse from there. Because of course, normally in bankruptcy, shareholders get wiped out immediately, and the creditors become the owners. So. Uh, and I've seen in the past, I think you know, going back way beyond to show how old I am, uh, Delphi, when it filed in 2005 for bankruptcy, the parts maker, um, it soon had um, David Tepper of Appaloosa, a hedge fund, jumping in saying, right, there's value for shareholders here, and I'm going to set up a shareholder committee. He did the same at Dana, another parts supplier. I, can't, I don't recall him getting anything out of that in the end because of the, great, the big recession coming along and, and hurting car makers and, and suppliers. But there must be recourse for shareholders, you think, in this bankruptcy.
2: You would think, I mean, the shareholders do have rights. And um, presumably they have as much rights in bankruptcy as they do outside of bankruptcy, assuming that there is a value in shares. And um, as the market cap is suggesting, they, um, they are still valuable. And, and that's really what Blue Mountain is arguing, that whether or not the company's in bankruptcy, they want to have say in the process, they want to have control of the board.
1: Mm. Now, we spent a fair bit of time looking at um, PG&E as, a, as an example of... Uh, Climate risk, we won't go into that again today. Um, You can go back to our fuse room from late last year and find it. Um, But clearly that's been a big part of what um, the board of directors is pushing here is it's the wildfires and behind that is the implication of climate risk. All well and good, I think we understand that and we appreciate that these are issues that companies have to deal with. But is that the only thing that's happening with PG&E here? I get the sense that there's more to it than just wildfires that PG&E is dealing with here.
2: Yes, absolutely. There are rates and other contracts that PG&E wants to renegotiate, and that's spelled out fairly clearly in some of its bankruptcy documents.
1: That seems a little bit off-color, doesn't it? (laughs)
2: Well, you know, bankruptcy court is an amazing thing. It allows you to renegotiate basically every contract that you have, or at least try to. It gives you an excuse to do that. And so, you know, from that standpoint, it seems like the first logical reason that PG&E has come up with to be in bankruptcy court.
1: So the wildfires become almost, I mean, let's not downplay them. Um, There's still a, a chance of significant liability, but they become almost the excuse to try and get something else sorted out.
2: That's what it seems.
1: Well, I mean, it still has to go through the bankruptcy judge, at least. So, you know, these things aren't all set. Uh, Lauren, as a result of that, I'm sure you'll be coming back on to talk yet more about this intriguing bankruptcy. Thanks for coming on the show.
2: Thank you.
3: This is Swaha Passnight with Liam Proud. Hi, Swaha. We are going to talk about uh, Huawei and the U.S. filing against. Do you want to start off, Lynn, by talking us through what exactly is the latest development in this uh, long-running saga?
4: So, as you say, this this has been going on for, I mean, months, if not years now. But the, the latest twist is that the U.S. has accused China's Huawei, which makes for telecom networks and also makes mobile phones itself. It's accused them of stealing US technology essentially um, and also breaking US sanctions on Iran. Um, now the context of this is twofold. I mean there's, there's some context for Huawei in particular. Um, it's always been suspected, particularly by the US, of being quite close to the Chinese state. Um, it was founded by a former general in the Chinese army. Um, now a couple of months ago, towards the end of last year, the CFO of Huawei, um, who is actually the daughter of the founder of the company, was arrested in Canada um, on U.S. at the U.S.'s behest, um, and is uh, still there, as far as we know, um, and is, uh, is kind of it's playing into this kind of wider tension between the U.S. and China, which is a result of the Donald Trump kind of trade war, which I think everyone is aware of.
3: Just specifically staying with the telco angle, though, Liam. Um, This is not an unmitigated uh, benefit for Huawei's competitors, however, whatever one might think. Do you want to explain why that is?
4: So, I mean, to explain why it is, just briefly to give an overview of what Huawei actually does. Um, So people might know it. It's probably better known for actually making phones. But a bigger part of its business is selling the network kit, which actually makes telecom networks work at all and in that sense it competes with uh, a couple of Scandinavian companies called Nokia and Ericsson. Now it's probably good for them if Huawei is getting in trouble on balance because they can kind of take up the market share, but the people who it's bad for would be the carriers and the operators that we all have monthly mobile contracts with because then they're having to bargain with just two players rather than three. It's effectively a triopoly, there's only really three important players in this market. What this means is that all of these companies, you know, think of Vodafone, uh, BT, Deutsche Telekom, Orange in Europe, um, they're going to be faced with probably much more expensive capital spending requirements when they want to improve their networks and build this kind of next-generation, super-fast 5G. So, you know, good for some in the telecom industry if you're making this kit, Um, bad if you're probably a customer or one of the operators, really.
3: Any rough guesstimates around how much all of this could cost if they were not in the market, as you say?
4: It's, it's, it, it really is a guesstimate. It's worth kind of stressing that. Um, but we ran a quick calculation where we said, um, you know, typically a rule of thumb is that about 40% of telecom operators' capex, that's capital spending, goes on kind of electrical kit for the network. Um, this is the bit, the, the market that Huawei operates in. Um, Now, there is an estimate that was put out there by Canada's um, carrier called TELUS which said that Huawei's entry into the market probably reduced prices by about 15%. So if you assume that politicians kind of yielded to US pressure in Europe and shut out Huawei entirely, then you might imagine that that 15% would go up again, in which case the cost would be Um, about 7% of overall free cash flow in Europe. And we worked out that in market value terms, that's about 20 billion euros, which is quite a lot, I think. Especially
3: in this sector where there are some troubled times uh, that they've been going through. So
4: European telecoms are generally very indebted, barely growing at all, have a bloated cost base, um, partly a result of being a lot of them were former national monopolies. Um, And if I'm an investor in that sector and I've seen my shares... Uh, fall in value by um, 20% in the last year or so, um, then this is probably the last thing I wanted to see
3: great. And of course, we mustn't forget the bigger picture outside telecoms, which is how this plays into the trade disputes and frictions that have been going on between the US and China. You've written about this from the auto point of view, different points of view. What do you think um, this will do to the relations?
4: I think it's very hard to tell. I mean, you have seen some Trump administration officials trying to uh, stress that they're separate. I think uh, the Treasury Secretary Mnuchin was actually saying just today, um, on Tuesday, that these are separate issues and we should not be conflating them. But it's very hard to see how they could not be conflated. I mean, the Chinese government has been um, very vocal in its opposition to the detention of the Huawei CFO um, and has been very sore about these accusations that um, Huawei's gear can somehow be used for um, cyber espionage. Um, So it's, it's not helpful when these two are having kind of had a period of... Uh, strained relations anyway Um, so yeah and certainly
3: not for global markets who read every little weather vane as is it good or bad uh, for frictions absolutely so so So. it's
4: yeah it's another thing to be to be concerned about
3: great liam thank you very much from uh myself swaha patnike and liam proud in london thank you very much for joining us this week
1: That's our show for this week. Thanks to Lauren silver Laughlin, Swaha Patanayak, and Liam Proud for coming on the show. We extend our gratitude, as always, to our producers, Freddie Joyner and Andrew D'Antonio. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at BreakingViews.com. Subscribe to the Views Room on iTunes. And please do share your opinions about our show. Join us again next week for another edition.
0: This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com slash symbols.